0: Okay, welcome everybody. This is Simon Russell from Behavioural Finance Australia and today we're going to be discussing digital advice and engagement. And to cover this topic with me today, I'm joined by Nick Hilton. Welcome, Nick. G'day Simon. So Nick's going to share some lessons he's learnt in developing a digital advice proposition for a major retail super fund um as is always my penchant for these sorts of things we're going to focus on a few of the behavioral uh, sort of psychological issues in engaging with members and clients Uh, but hopefully nick can also touch on a few practical commercial technological whatever other challenges and issues uh, have arisen during this process now digital advice obviously isn't new but arguably is particularly relevant right now for a number of reasons Um, one is we have a large unadvised segment of the Australian market, of course, and and the channels to service them are in some ways getting more difficult. Face-to-face personal advice is becoming increasingly regulated. There are challenges from a legal perspective in delivering general advice and factual information can avoid some of the legal challenges, but how useful is it going to be in helping members actually make decisions? Uh, On top of that, we've got regulatory um, burdens, the stapling is changing dynamics, we've got DDO, the um, design distribution obligations, uh, we've got a push to retirement products and delivering solutions and advice in that space. So there's a heap of reasons why some of this sort of stuff is particularly relevant at the moment, for super funds, for wealth groups with unadvised clients and possibly therefore also for sort of banks and insurers as well. So there's a heap to cover here. So looking forward to this conversation with uh, with you, Nick, on this, but um, perhaps before we get into the detail, do you mind giving us a bit of a um, background on your experience sort of leading up to this, this work you did?
1: No, I will. Thank you, Simon. Great introduction. I was quite impressed with that introduction. I'm looking forward to listening to this session myself. It sounds like it's going to be enlightening. Um, yes, yeah, so I've spent about 20 years uh, in the industry, um, in wealth management. I, I've spent a lot of that time in, an, in advisory roles, but I've also had consulting roles and, and M&A roles. Uh, most recently, I've, I've been working at M L C, where I, I ran a range of functions that, I guess, supported the employed and self-employed licensee networks. Um, like licensee operations, technical, um, education, technology, those types of functions. Uh, But I also uh, delivered a range of propositions into the MLC Superfund, um, which is really what we're here to have a chat about today. uh, But that was in relation to digital advice. Um, We had some phone-based propositions uh, and obviously we ran a a referral panel uh, for comprehensive advice. So, yeah, got got a bit of experience in the space. And
0: I should say, by the way, full disclosure here: um, one of uh, for one of um, uh, Nick's roles, he was actually my boss uh, for many years ago. So I'm sure that wasn't a highlight for him. But uh, anyway, something to to add to the resume on uh, perhaps page seventy four of the uh, of the appendix uh, <laughs> in there somewhere. No, no, um, no, I know how
1: to I know how to pick a good horse, Simon. That's the, that's the way I figure it.
0: And despite that, I still was in
1: your team. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right so okay so you so you've got what you painted a picture of a broad background across uh, um, aspects of advice and technology which is sounding relevant to the project so what, what was the project for the or the context for the project itself what was sort of some of the dynamics what was trying to be achieved how did this come about
1: i think look, there's, there was a range of um perspectives on it but i'll give you i'll give you maybe a, a, a basic one which is certainly i've had a very heavy advice background and i'm a, certainly a big believer in the value of advice But I'm also mindful that, and and sorry, and I also think there's a great consumer benefit in it. And and I think there's a bit of research that really highlights that there's a big increase in demand for advice. Um, But I think for the range of reasons that you've articulated that, um, you know, it's very difficult to deliver advice at a price point that's actually going to be suitable for everybody. Uh, And and so, therefore, you need to have things like the types of things that we built um, to be able to deliver those services to clients. Um, or to members of the fund in this instance. Uh, and look, really, from a from a fund's point of view, they're trying to do things like, which is not not crazy, engage members, um, support them in their decision making, uh, and obviously drive engagement as well as support retention within the fund itself. So there's a range of objectives that that, that the fund was trying to achieve here.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. And no, that makes sense. And I'm looking forward to going into some of the detail, but perhaps if you can just give us a bit of an overview of what this thing was that you developed and what, what sort of advice was it delivering? What would it actually
1: do? Yeah. So look, it was it was very much um a super fund proposition and it and it fell under uh what is what is defined under the CIS law as intrafund fund uh, advice. Um, but it is really what I would consider kind of simple advice needs of members. So it was it was very much around helping them plan for retirement. Um, And so it was really getting them to make decisions or supporting them in making decisions about, um, you know, how much money they'll actually need at retirement, uh, how they can um, influence that outcome through additional savings or um, perhaps uh, different investment profiles um, and and contributions and the like. And did it include insurance in there as well? Uh, we had, we, we I think one of the learnings through the process was that you needed to have separate modules with different um, different propositions. So yeah, we had different solutions for different propositions. One of them was an insurance-based proposition as well. Yeah
0: yeah okay all right so as you know I, I love all the behavioral stuff so i'm looking forward to hearing some of these sort of behavioral tricks and traps that you you managed to sort of come across and how you how you navigated them so do you, do you mind giving us a bit of a sense what what sort of sort of behavioural or psychological issues did you come across and how did you deal with them in uh in sort of engaging with members
1: yeah look um look i don't think we'd ever consider ourselves expert in the space but we were we were mindful of some things um so, as an example, um, you know, instead of presenting to the to the members what would be their estimated retirement or superannuation balance at retirement, uh, we'd look at things like h- how do you present that number as an income stream in in retirement? So, what is the monthly income that that um, superannuation balance is likely to contribute to? As a, as a way of which trying to distinguish or create a, create a, a, an understanding of the difference between having three hundred thousand dollars in super at retirement versus having a income stream of $5,000 a month. What would, what would that, what would the two distinctions be there?
0: Okay. And so did you provide them both of those two things or did you give them. Yeah. Well, we we had a
1: big focus though on the big focus on the, on the monthly income stream balance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and was there a conversation about, should it be annual, monthly, weekly? How did you come and land on monthly?
1: Yeah, I think it was the best way to uh, best way to do the calculation. That was probably um, a way in which a consumer can actually understand it. Um, I'm sure there's other views as to what's an appropriate way of doing it, but certainly the monthly was the perspective we took.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends how you're trying to nudge them. the. I mean, the, the 300,000, as you say, seems like a large number, doesn't it? Versus five thousand yeah. dollars which might be an income amount but if you went weekly i can tell you it'll be a smaller amount <laughs> for yeah. example so i mean if you're trying yeah. to encourage savings then maybe you want, the, you want the smaller amount i mean it's if you're trying to encourage an annuity product then you maybe want the larger amount i mean there's a few it depends what i think you're trying to nudge the, the member towards doing in that case
1: yeah no fair enough look like i said I, I don't think we would ever be considered experts in that space but i have heard you talk about those types of factors in influencing outcomes that's for sure
0: yeah. Okay. Well, it's good to see it was on the on the agenda. Um, so that was that was one. Were there other examples that you came across where the sort of the behavioural and psychological aspects were considered?
1: Um, yeah. Look. Well, there was observations. I think from our perspective on um, just how much of an influence certain things could actually have on a on a on a member. Certainly, um, I think having having seen a lot of the technology that exists in the market having having a focus on the on the client interface has a very critical um, impact on the usage of the tools and the and the way in which um, uh, members use them Uh, i think there's an example you and i have spoken about which was um you know how, how do we get people to complete the tools um um, recognizing that, that that was one of the key measures we wanted people to start the tools and to work all the way through it mm. and we did notice things like if if you if you had buttons in there that suggested um you know get your statement of advice for example uh, you'd have a certain proportion of people clicking that button and completing the tools and obtaining or downloading a copy of their statement of advice versus if you said Do you want your results uh, the same thing would happen they'd get a copy of their statement of advice and download results however we noticed that there was a far significant, uh increase in the number of people that actually uh press the button when you talked about it as results as opposed to getting a statement of advice
0: but by any chance did a a lawyer design the original button
1: (laughs) there may have been a lot of legal involvement in the original design (laughs) yeah
0: I can imagine that in that case surely that that there shouldn't be too much legal objectives turning the button from get your statement of advice to get your results but if it if it significantly changes how many people are are actually going the full way through the advice process and clicking that button and finally getting the thing that really the process are designed to deliver it sounds yeah. like it's a it's a, a big win for a relatively small change
1: that's right and look but in fairness to the lawyers there is a fair bit of guidance in relation to the red guides on digital tools and how you need to make sure people do get their um, uh, statements of advice and what how, how accessible they are etc but but of course, they don't define what the button's called, but yeah, obviously we, we managed to, manage to find a better pathway to get a better outcome, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like that example because I think it's a good good demonstration of the difficulty, I guess, we as an industry sometimes have in articulating what something means. Why is this relevant to the end member? And that, that first button that says, get your statement of advice. Well, okay, if I'm a member, that thing sounds like a document is it really that interesting versus get my results, which sort of sounds a bit more tangible, a bit more, I don't know, it's in the parlance of a regular sort of Joe Blow that you understand what that sort of thing is. It's just easier to understand and draw that connection. So it's, I quite like that example, particularly if it's actually had a significant difference, uh, made a significant difference in people's outcomes. uh,
1: I think that's right. And I think it probably goes to show the importance of doing things like, you know, user testing and quick iterations of changes and things like that, because you just, you just don't, necessarily always know what's gonna have the biggest impact mm. when it comes to building kind of digital tools and technology solutions.
0: No, no, I completely agree. In fact, that's a that's a good segue then. So if this part of this process is a process of exploration, so what sort mm. of unexpected things, what sort of surprises maybe then came out as you're going through this this exploration?
1: Um, look, well, I think that maybe pleasantly surprised in that how, how much of a take up the tool had. I mean, we, um, uh, from launching the tools and obviously getting the foundations right and then uh, going through an exercise of promoting the tools, uh, we managed to really increase the usage. And I think, you know, towards the, towards the last year, we were getting 40,000-odd members using the tools, uh, which I think was a great outcome. Um, so I think it really got, does go to show that, that there is a big pent-up demand for that kind of tool. I will say that, um, you know, my personal preference is that everyone would go and get comprehensive advice uh, that would actually uh, be appropriate for them and be tailored to their circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, mm-hmm. but of course, not everyone can afford that um, or can uh, has the money to pay for it. And so these types of digital tools, I think are really good um, helping self-help type arrangements that work very well for for, for members when their perhaps uh, portfolio balances are smaller, but obviously um, do allow them to get closer to um, uh, retirement and, and their yeah. objectives in retirement. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so the forty thousand you're referring to—that so that's a person going through and completing and getting a statement of advice—is that what you're referring to?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
0: yeah. it is. And so then, what other measures then after getting a statement of advice? Because presumably, I don't get a good retirement by having a statement of advice. At that point, I have to then have to go and no. do something at that point. So what what other things did you then maybe perhaps see people doing or measure or what? Are, yeah, it from look- consumer. consumer.
1: Well, look, I mean, you know, I, I am, I am absolutely a believer in the value of advice, but of course, um, advice is only valuable if you actually turn around and execute what it's actually being asked you, what it's been asking you to do. So, so we did, we did, to the extent possible, um, focus on uh, execution. Um, obviously, there were some things that were easier than others. You know, for example, you know, we could, we could see activity as it relates to, um, obviously, going through a risk profiling process. and and resulting um, recommended asset allocation and then obviously we could see the activity that related to the switches that existed within the fund Um, and we could do that with other things as well although you know for example if if someone was going through an exercise of um, looking at the amount of insurance that they were going to have maybe they didn't necessarily execute it through the fund they could have executed it outside of the fund so you know some things were easier than others but but of course we were very curious to understand what it is that people were doing when it when it came to getting the advice and then executing it, because you know, that was after all the benefit we were trying to, to deliver is to get people to make better decisions.
0: Yeah. And the, I mean the risk profiles always um, are, always intrigue me. So when you're looking at people's <laughs> risk profiles, do, do, do yeah. you see, for example, if I if I go through the tool and it says I should be an aggressive investor, for example, yeah. did those aggressive investors then switch to more aggressive funds? Is that is that do they actually do what we should would normally suggest they would do?
1: Uh, Yeah, look, it was probably, I I want to highlight a specific example. I mean, I think one of the things with risk profiles was that um, you you saw, you could only see activity when it changed, right? So if someone went through the exercise of um, doing the risk profile and it was suggested that they were a balanced investor or a high growth investor and that's what they were already invested in, then you didn't necessarily see Mm. that outcome or you didn't see that change because there was nothing Mm. to change. So. You know, you wouldn't necessarily have been able to tell if someone was just validating their current position, but we did mm. see people actively make changes. Although, obviously, it wasn't everyone. I wouldn't, mm. I wouldn't suggest that um, the amount of people that make the changes as high as what it would be in a traditional face to face model, where I think that mm. the the outcomes is usually pretty, pretty, pretty high um, based on an advisor conversation and winning the, the trust of the client and then moving on. But, but yeah, it was something that was reasonable, I think, in the context of. Um, uh, the fact that we're dealing with a digital pool. Mm.
0: Yeah, and as you say, if, if 90% i of that, I made that up, but if 90% of people go through and get effectively confirmation that they're already in a product mm. that aligns with their risk profile, then I guess there's nothing to see, is there? It's, That's right. Uh, yeah. Um, what What was the approach then if you ended up with a client who might have I a, 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 um, I don't know, a, a younger client with a low risk profile, for example, how, how did you, manage that sort of scenario and presenting them, well, actually, look, you've got to maybe either invest more aggressively, even though it doesn't look like you want to do it or, or maybe yeah. wind back your, your uh, retirement objectives. What was the approach uh, there? Uh,
1: yeah, look, I think, well, so because you're dealing directly with the consumer, I think it just emphasizes, um, as I said, the importance of kind of having a good client interface and something that actually makes sense for them, recognizing their level of you know financial literacy. Now, if you look at the traditional um, technology solutions that exist in the market, a lot of them are built for advisors and they're sort of very complex and, mm. you know, mm. uh, very, very powerful for being able to advise a client. But in this instance, you need something something very different. So um, obviously, you know, using an example, we would be trying to have interactive tools that allowed a um, member to make decisions around that particular example. So, for example, if, if they're projected... Um, a superannuation balance looks like it's going to be, or sorry, their projected superannuation income at retirement is going to be lower than what they estimate they need to to be, we need to have kind of interactive kind of um, visual aids that allow them to demonstrate how far below they are of the, from that objective. But then also other things like um, slider bars and other tools to allow them to just make changes to what their um, assumptions might be so for example if if they had an original uh, retirement age of 65 then you know you might want to have a slider bar that would allow them to work out how much of the gap is reduced if they change their retirement age from 65 to 70 and to do things like or made additional contributions or all or, or those types of things to try and work out um, how they get closer to their actual stated kind of mm-hmm. retirement objectives
0: Yeah, I mean, I like those sort of things. I think that a slider bar to me takes this this thing which is hard to define in a risk profile question. Yeah, yeah, some questions. And what will I do if the market falls? And what will I, I I don't know. Okay, fine. You've got some questions, you create this thing. But frankly, what does risk really mean to me? It means that, I don't know, that I'll get hit by a bus in my kids can't go to private school anymore, or it means that I have a health issue and I have to retire. early. And I have as... they're, they're the practical things where risk actually translates into a life outcome. And that slider bar from what you've described sounds like it's a way of understanding risk, isn't it? It's like, well, actually, yeah. I might have to work a bit longer here and I might have to change my, that actually is to me, that's, that's like letting them allow or allowing someone to actually understand risk in a, in a hopefully what's a personally relevant way for, for them. Yeah, I know I know
1: you're always very passionate about risk profiles. So <laughs> oh, that
0: makes it sound sad. I'd say that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're right. But you're right. I mean, the reality is we I mean, it is not a um traditional advice process where where under that scenario an advisor would, you know, very actively try and explain, you know, the circumstances to the client and encourage them to perhaps, you know, take a more aggressive risk profile. And so it's not that. So, you know, but this is obviously an alternate. Um, An approach, and and you know, to the extent you can, you need to be able to explain those things, and that's where we've found certainly the use of visual aids and and the like was far more beneficial to try and make that happen. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So those visual aids, but that's I that that that, well, they sound like a very good um, way to create a connection between these intangible sort of often difficult to define concepts like risk and the, the slide is one example do you have other examples on there that you've you've come across or used in the in the process of building these tools
1: um well i think there was there was i think i i flagged it before we we talked about um other visual aids like progression towards your okay. you know income balance uh every that was one of the one of the ways in which we tried to articulate it um kind of similar to Similar to what you see in LinkedIn when you're trying to complete your profile, it's kind of the same kind of concept. How close to you are? are you complete it to try and you know gamify it a little bit? Um, but yeah, that, so, that was the type of philosophy there.
0: So in that case, so it's, so I mean I don't know. I'm trying to think of some numbers off the top of my head, but but say I want fifty thousand dollars per annum, uh, what's that five? Six, I don't know what's that, five thousand a month is thirty thousand, ten thousand a month, one hundred and twenty thousand. I'm struggling with my maths now.
1: Let's call it five thousand a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah so, yeah. so, so say it's five thousand a month, and mm. my projection is I'm going to get to only a balance that gives me thousand a month. Yeah, four thousand. Yep, yep. Uh, okay, so then. How do, how do you define the progression to, to that? Is it that I then make a contribution and it, and it moves the dial slightly towards exactly. it, or if I, it is? Okay. Yeah, so
1: the way, the way in which we had it set up, it was certainly fully interactive. So you'd see the objective, you'd see where you're at today, and then you had a range of levers that you could pull, you know, in inverted commas, slider bars, move your time and balance up, contribute more, those types of things to actually bridge that gap or conversely, if you move it the other way, make the gap smaller, sorry. So yeah, you had a few different ways of trying to um, trying to educate the the member. Oh, fantastic.
0: Uh, and what about the challenges? So, so it's it's all sounding hunky dory so far. I mean, <laughs> yeah, did you have any sort of roadblocks or issues along the way that made this more difficult?
1: Yeah. Look, there certainly there certainly was always challenges. I think the um, I think the one that was probably the the, the most profound, I think, was that um, just trying to navigate. Um, I guess, the legislation and the rules around this type of um, governance framework. So, um, to be honest, most of the legislation around advice hasn't changed in 20 years. And, you know, the rea- reality is technology was very different then. Mm. I think consumer behaviour was very, very different then. And there has been a few examples of where, I think, you know, regulators have tried to to perhaps provide further guidance. Um, but it just doesn't seem to be... Uh, working as well as what it needs to be. And and plus I think in the, our particular example around digital advice, there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of providers in the space that had scale and were operating, mm. um, operating live with with active member engagement. And so there wasn't necessarily industry norms you could rely upon. You know, a lot of that stuff was was um, you know, really about, about us trying to find our own way through it. Um look, I'm I'm encouraged though that um there's obviously some reviews um that that are taking place at the moment around affordable advice mm. and i'm hoping that out of that process there'll be far more of an acknowledgement of these types of um, systems that i really do think are the future for um engaging you know the mass market at least i think for for more complex uh um sort of client scenarios and things like that you'll always need a, a traditional face-to-face advisor and, and in fact i think i think what i would really hope happens out of the um affordable advice review is is perhaps um, trying to make a system exist a little bit better where you have a combination of digital and, and, yeah. you know, face-to-face interactive, rather than this kind of assumption that it's one or the other, where I don't think it is. I think it's actually how do those two things work together? Cause that's where uh, a lot of the benefit I think will come.
0: And in this case, did the two pieces work together? Did you, for example, get people who were referred to a face-to-face advisor through the digital
1: tool? I think we we'll, we'll, to the extent we could, so, you know, our, our process was perhaps more about, um, trying to help them digitally and then offering other pathways to get more comprehensive advice if the if the tool and the way it operated wasn't right for them. So we'd have phone-based solutions and and more comprehensive solutions. But I don't think there was as much of a uh, interaction between all of it to make it um, worthwhile. you know so I would have much rather everyone sitting on one system so that you actually saw that um, kind of um, you saw that client history. Uh, across any of the systems that occurred, whereas it was all, they all ran different um, bits of technology, but that was a certain um, scenario that we ran. Yeah.
0: Well, actually maybe we should touch on that. So the technology piece as well, I know we touched on it off offline before. So what, what lessons do you learn from a technology perspective here? Do you think yeah. it will help?
1: Yeah, look, I think the, um, there's a couple, one, you've got to deal with, we had, we have a variety of vendors that we dealt with um, and uh, I think, you know, doing your due diligence on the vendors becomes critical. No, no one provider gave us the whole solution. So we had, a, we had a stack of, you know, five or six different providers. Mm. Um, and I think getting them to interact and work together is very, very difficult. Um, and, and in fact, you know, when things go wrong, they tend to sometimes blame one another. So that becomes a bit, bit problematic. Uh, in fact, also, we had, a, we had an interesting scenario where one of them went into administration, which was quite uh, interesting uh, to try and fill that, fill that gap.
0: So, did
1: you did you not pay them? <laughs> we paid them. I'm, I'm assuming other <laughs> people didn't. So, so yeah. So there, look, there was certainly um, you know a, a few things two learning exercises there, but I think uh, managing them closely was was definitely one of the important things, and and also getting clear around what is it that we wanted to run and own ourselves versus what were we happy to 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 outsource and buy mm-hmm. best of market or buy from the sh- off, off the shelf in other way. Yeah.
0: Okay, um, so, so I guess stepping back from it now, so that's, um, I, I guess you've, well, well, actually, when was this? This was sometime last year, was it? Yeah, 19, 20 uh,
1: and, and into 21,
0: yeah. Yeah, okay, so now you've had a little chance to I guess, step away from it. I mean, what other big lessons would you take away? If someone's gonna go down this path? What would you say to them at this point?
1: Uh, look, I, I think that um, th- there's undoubtedly a significant opportunity in this space I think that, um, as you said in your opening, certainly there's an opportunity for um, uh, superannuation funds, but also I think any any kind of large organizations with significant, you know, customer bases that are that are uneng- uneng- unengaged or unadvised, mm. you know, whether that's as, as you said, you know, um, insurance funds or you know platforms with orphan clients, or you know, there's a whole lot of activity. I, I, I would have liked to have um, Spent more time developing the insights that we were learning through the consumer behavior. Mm. So um, one of the things I was particularly interested in, but you know, didn't get around to getting it done was the um, you know, just trying to understand how did how did things like um different news articles or you know, economic environments, what you saw in the seven o'clock news, change the behavior of people when they were completing their risk profile assessments, for example, because we had, you know, large numbers and large data um, of, of people u- using it. It would have been really interesting to see what behaviours um, were occurring and not just, um, just for in, um, interest sake, but to be then able to communicate back to the membership base uh, what those insights were to maybe give them a little bit of an education of their own behaviours and their own biases that might occur because of what's happening around them. Um, I'm sure that'll be a fascinating area for someone in behavioral finance. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, I mean, it, it would. because I mean, part because part of me is thinking if, you would, if what your risk profile is doing, if what that risk profile questionnaire is doing is measuring some long term inherent aspect of this person's decision making to say, hey, actually, as a sort of a personality trait, you are a more conservative style investor. If that's mm. what the risk profiling is supposed to be doing, then what i see on the news that night shouldn't make any difference at all because my no, personality shouldn't. doesn't change day to day but no. what i suspect is it will do because often the risk profiling questionnaires will have stuff in there that might say i don't want to put words in your mouth about what yours said but often it will say things like i don't know what do you see is the most um um advantageous way to invest money at the moment and that might change day to day so if yeah. my risk profile is based on i said equities yesterday but now i think it's cash yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, my risk profile should go up and down every day, but the, some of the other things may stay quite stable. So I, I guess it yeah. probably depends. I reckon you probably get a bit of feedback about your risk profiling questionnaire in, in
1: doing Possibly. that process. Possibly. I, 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 I agree. I, I, I would love to think that it wouldn't have an influence, but I think the reality is it does. Mm. It does. I mean, there was there was lots and lots of people switching to cash through the GFC, just as much in the other next last downturn. So. I think the reality is things like, you know, behavioral finance exists for a reason because people do things that they really shouldn't be perhaps doing or behave in a way that um, goes against what they're supposed to be doing from a long term strategic plan. But, you know, uh, that's what the idea of an advisor is supposed to do is help people through that. And I think that's what the idea of tools like this are trying to do as well. Hmm.
0: Fantastic. All right, Well, we might leave it there. But before we go, this was a previous life for you now. What are you, what are you, what are you doing now? Are you still helping people develop these sorts of tools?
1: Yeah, I am. So I am, I'm spending a bit of time um, consulting with um, some participants in the industry around how they better serve the needs of their um, clients and, and members. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a bit of a change for me, but I'm enjoying it.
0: Okay. And then if they want to get in touch with you about this sort of content, what's, uh, what's the best way?
1: Best, best via LinkedIn, so Nick Hilton on uh, at LinkedIn, so um, easy to catch. Nick Hilton,
0: perfect, and same for me. I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to uh, connect with me. In fact, I'm, I'm not sure why I bother asking people this question anymore. They always say always say the same thing. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you very
1: much for your time. It's uh, it's been fantastic listening to you today. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it.